Cool. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to the Live Free Podcast. We have an exciting episode this week. Um, but before we start off, we do ask that if you enjoy the podcast and you get some value out of it, which you definitely will in this one with this guest we have on here, um, we ask that you do leave us a rating and um, just, you know, keep supporting the podcast for us. Um, so before we get started, uh, JD, uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great today, Mike. I'm really excited to, to bring on our guest here. Uh, Rob Chang is... Uh, He's not new to the game. He's been in the real estate game for decades. Uh, He's a broker out of California. He's a recent author of a book titled Passive Wealth, which we'll get into. And he uh, runs management for hundreds of millions of dollars worth of assets. So uh, Rob is going to be a great, great speaker here today. And I'm excited to get into how he got started uh, and just kind of how he got to where he is today. Oh, yeah. He has tons and tons more experience than either me or you combined. So it's going to be very interesting to see and kind of like how he and his perspective is on, on different things for sure. Yeah. And that, that's the cool part is uh, a lot of our audience is going to be newer to the game or at the level where they're four or five years in. And to see someone like Rob, who's been doing it for so long and where he's gotten to, it'll be really great to break down kind of each step along the way um, and the different milestones he's hit and what it's, what it takes to build up a career of that level. Oh yeah, most definitely. All right, let's get started off with, uh, with Rob. So uh, when did you get started in real estate and what sort of like brought you in and, and drew you into sort of just real estate in general? Absolutely. Well, Mike and JD, thanks for having me on. First of all, really appreciate it. So the thing that drew me in, well, I'm one of those things that you call a lifer. I'm born into it, and also it's my choice. So I love brick and mortar, the business of it. I just, I just love real estate in general. I do everything related to real estate except lending. So anything real estate related, I'm in. I can't say the same for my family members, but me, I'm all in, baby. Wow, love it. Yeah. Lending's lending's a little harder to to break into, especially because there's it kind of creates some conflicts of interest with everything else you have going on. Uh, I'm not sure regulator regulators would be looking over that too favorably, but uh, it's incredible what you've gone to so far. And I'd love if you can just break down kind of what you have going on right now. That way we can backtrack to to the beginning, and everyone can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I start out like a beginner, like everyone else uh, is probably wondering. So right now we manage a portfolio of about $193 million in worth, which breaks down to about 40 different properties. We only manage apartments. We don't manage like uh, strip malls or shopping centers or, um, I mean, we have a couple office buildings, but we only did that as a favor to our, our existing clients, they said, hey, we really want you to take care of it. So we just said, fine, we'll take care of it. Um, we have just, I think, two single family homes left, but we we stopped taking single family homes on as management clients about five years ago because it really didn't fit into our business plan. Uh, the single family home management fee contracts, it made sense when it was me, like a one-man band but it didn't make sense when there's like five people on payroll to be managing uh, a single family home. I know in the Bay area, the the price of the rent is like astronomical, right? Like five grand compared to somewhere else in the United States, but still the fee is not enough 
to make it worth um, the payroll hours, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'd, I'd be curious because it, it sounds like you found your niche in doing the apartments. And these are obviously uh, higher end in California and Bay Area. Uh, apartments rent for a lot more. The, the prices are a lot more. And it makes right. sense that to $193 million under management. But I'd be curious. So you're, you're finding that managing single family homes tends to be less profitable on the margins. Um, what, what kind of issues do you experience with those versus the apartment management? Well, there's pros and cons with the single family homes. They tend to not bother you as much because they're paying the utilities and uh, they don't want to be bothered if they're living in a single family home, right? They probably have their own laundry machine, so they're not calling you if it breaks. And, um, but uh, just the smaller properties, I just found that the owners are more needy. Like we tend, they're less experienced. That just, it's not really fair to say that, but that's just the way it is. Okay, if you're dealing with an owner that owns 60 units versus an owner that owns a single family home, they're gonna be different levels of experience, right? So when one is gonna be maybe more dependent on that home for its their retirement income, so they may be less prone to do all the capital expenditures that are better to do now instead of you know, paying double for it later, like preventative re repairs and maintenance. So it's just that it's just that client type that we like to deal with the seasoned apartment investor. Luckily, luckily we can make that choice now. But the seasoned apartment investor, that's our ideal client. That's who we serve best. And so that just happens to be our, our niche right now. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure it's a lot less handholding. So it's it's a lot easier to manage them, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So how did you get into real estate? Like what, what did you start with? Cause now you do just about everything. I'd be curious with what did, what did you start with and kind of how did it progress from there? Yeah. So I just had a minimum wage job doing the accounting, the books. I was doing that for my parents. They had a small uh, portfolio here uh, and they just had me at 16 years old, just doing the accounting on like these big ass ledgers, you know, not, not even just the debits and credit ledgers that fold out to like 20 columns wide. I had to do that, make a mistake, get out the pencil and eraser and get out the ruler and do it again. I mean, there's no software, no programs. So what, I just started, what year was this? Oh my goodness. 16 years old. I was 1996. Okay. 1996 back, back with the ledgers. Yeah. Awesome. 1996. That's my first job. And then it grew on to be like going to the apartments with my uncle, learning how to be a handyman, cleaning the attics, crawling into the crawl spaces because I was little, you know, just like picking up cigarette butts in the gutter, doing my little broom and dustpan, doing my thing. And then that, that progressed to knocking on the doors, asking for the rent payments. I'm just like the squirmy little kid saying, excuse me, your rent is late. Like, you know, pay me. Like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> uh, luckily, it's all electronic now. But um, it just progressed from from there. And I went to college, got my degree in, in economics, came back, and I became a broker. I became a broker, at Marcus, a broker agent at Marcus and Millichap for about four years in Palo Alto. I did that. Um, sold a good amount of property. They actually assigned me to be a retail broker, not an apartment broker. 
because that was like a hole, a hole that needed to be filled. They needed an area serve, which is East Bay, and they needed a retail agent because they had major saturation, tons of multifamily agents already. So they put me on that product category. I did pretty well. And, um, but one year during the recession, 2007, I was cold calling like a mania. I was making like 700 cold calls a week. I was the top of the list, but you know how much paychecks I got for a year? What? Because the, remember that was that lender limit, four properties a piece, right? Four loans per client. They hit, they hit us with that cap and the prices went down. So I gave up, man. I gave up my agent's title and I started flipping houses. I started flipping foreclosures. And I went to go flip for foreclosures in the hood. And I decided, you know, what the hell? All those HGTV shows look really sexy. Like all these people like doing their own construction and stuff. So I had my, my little luxury Mercedes coupe, went to Home Depot, filled the trunk up with pavers. And I was like, how come the back tires are scraping? Like, hmm, it's not supposed to do that. So, <laughs> I did that, all the fixing as much as I could do, I did it myself. And from then on, the people that saw, they loved the work and they said, hey, Rob, can you do my house like that? I said, no, I don't do that. I'm not a contractor. And eventually everybody kept beating me down like, oh, it looks so good because I, I was a perfectionist at that time. I didn't know perfectionist kills business. Okay. I didn't know that at that time. <laughs> I was the guy who stayed there till like 10 PM doing all the touch up paint and all that, all the other details. I finally agreed. I said, all right, I'll start fixing your, your properties. So, you know, five years later, I had, I had a contractor take me under his wing because in California, you need a four year apprenticeship to get a, a, a B license. So I finished that whole stint. I got my contractor's license and I was a full-time contractor for eight years. You know, tool, I'm talking about tool belt, sweat here, sweat here, <laughs> everywhere else, you know, swinging the hammer, standing on the roofs, got the saw in my hand six hours a day, man. I was doing that for like eight years straight, driving a work truck. My wife is like, do you ever think you're going to get a white collar job again? <laughs> <laughs> like honey, at that point was it only you on the, the contracting team uh did you do you have anyone else helping you out so uh it was a small crew probably like three people to four people for the most part uh, the biggest point it was 13 employees and um it was it was really busy i mean my gosh it was hard juggling all these different jobs for clients I mean, the work itself was easy, but the, the difficult part was waiting for inspections and the permits and then getting all the callbacks. You know, callbacks are when you think the work is done, but the homeowner says it's not, right? The permit signed off. It says final, you may live here. But the owner said, hey, Robbie, I'm gonna need you to come back tomorrow. 8 a.m. before I leave for work. Yeah, all right, I'll be there. Wasn't I just there yesterday? Oh, yeah. You know, like this little thing needs tuning up. 
the callbacks were just killing me, man. Because honestly, you think about the way contractors get work, right? Right now, you, you call somebody on Yelp. You click that box, get competing quotes. What happens? You say, I have a project. I want to build 10,000 you know, square feet addition in my backyard. Boom, you get six contractors chasing you. And who gets the job usually? The lowest bid. There you go. So you got the lowest bid working the hardest for you, right? And what happens to the profit? It's small. So you'd be lucky to get out of there for like 10% profit, okay? And you're talking about like a six-month job or a nine-month job if the weather's bad, right? So I think about six years into it, I switched my fee model on contracting. I switched it to cost plus. It's not that furniture store. It's just like the cost of the job plus I'm going to add 15%. I don't care what the hell it costs. You're going to pay all the materials, all the labor, plus my management fee, my construction management fee. And people were fine with that. I said, you're going to get quality. You can call me back as many times as you want. It's just going to cost you. And they said, that's fine. So that was fine. I did that for a couple of years. And then that transitioned to, well, now I don't want to do third-party contracts anymore for building projects. I only want to use the contracting arm for synergy. So I'm only going to use the contracting arm to manage properties we manage, to, to, to provide maintenance for properties we manage and remodel them and properties that we own. So instead of having the crew like scattered, you know, an hour north, an hour east, now everyone is just like on call. So we have, you know, the in-house maintenance people We get stuff done like that. The owners just love the fast response. So the tenants, right? So that's kind of how I transitioned from the accountant made my way, you know, it's like a story, like it's the hero story in Lord of the Rings, you know, <laughs> they start making soup and then they become like a sword maker and then they, they kill the dragon. So <laughs> that's kind of how, that's kind of how it evolved. I didn't know at the time. I thought I was a loser when I, when I stopped being a broker, I thought I'd be changing toilets forever, you know, in my contracting job. I didn't know I was building tools to help me where I'm at now. I wish there was somebody coaching me at that time to help me with the vision. You know what I mean? Yeah, it does does really sound like you're going with the flow and, and taking what was coming at you. I mean, you went through the recession that that clearly had you pivot uh, and get into more of the, the contracting <clears throat> side of things. And I think it's really interesting that you came from being a perfectionist um, and then kind of had to adjust because at, at scale, it's a lot harder to keep that same craftsmanship when you're not the one finishing every little detail. Uh, and as you said, the callbacks are a nightmare to deal with. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear like how you piece together all of the synergy with everything that you had. And I think it's really important that you started and kind of pivoted in so many directions uh, and were able to connect all the dots. So I guess if you could speak to kind of how you kept margins higher um, and also when you, what was kind of the breaking point for you to realize that everything needs to stay in hand in hand um, to make sense for you to keep doing. 
Absolutely. So, I mean, people have their events outside of the business, right? You're talking about marriage, relocation, can be death, can be whatever, taxes, right? So for me, it's the birth of my daughter. So it went from me being able to have 12 hours every day to work and be a workaholic and just jam on whatever project I needed to be to, oh, I got to be there for my wife. We got to go to the doctor. You know, we, she has a, you know, three doctor visits and an ultrasound in a week. Like I got to be the guy, I'm not going to send an Uber. You know what I mean? So I got to figure out how I'm going to be there and still perform for the business and still have all the profits. Right. And still grow the business. So it was at the point it's called a breaking point. I was the DIY DIY one man band for 168 doors. Okay. Managing them in my truck, collecting the rent, doing the reports, doing the maintenance, doing the leases, doing the follow-up, doing the owner communication, everything. I was doing 168 units. My baby I don't know how your phone didn't explode. Oh, it was crazy. Like I didn't want to talk to anybody. I'm just like, I'm busy. I'm busy. What is it? Is it important? I'm busy. I got to go. Like, you know, like the water shut off. What do you want me to do? There's 30 residents waiting to turn on. Like, can we talk about this later? Everybody thought I was the rudest guy, but I got stuff done. So they kept me around. You know what I mean? I was just about results, 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 results. Screw the journey. Who needs to have fun? Let's get stuff done. But at that outside, the outside factor that comes in, it's going to throw everyone a curveball eventually in their life came into mind. Um, I have a few choices, right? Number one, shut down the business. That'll give me a lot of time, right? <laughs> Unlimited time, but then all the money goes away. The next choice is pivot. So pivot, meaning that grip I had, the perfectionist grip, like, oh, this is my perfection. I'm going to spend 12 hours making it perfect because that's what the owners want, right? I had to let go. I had to let go. I had to hire my first assistant. He was a college kid who I thought had a good major that lined up with the company. It was going to be uh, serving our same mission with the company. And he was awesome. I hired a coach. I hired a realtor coach. Okay. And that helped me clear a lot of my blind spots. Uh, I mean, he was almost like a therapist for me, man, because I probably cried way too much. Uh, it's probably a 50% therapist, 50% coach. And I tell you, after I hired the first assistant and I let go and I had some burden lift off, I hired three more. So I hired, you know, a leasing person. I just stopped showing apartments. After I saw that someone can do it for me and they can fill up the units, I said, I don't have to do this ever, ever again. Why should I? So I had three, we, we had a four car garage in my old house. It was a special permit we got. So what I did was we, we sectioned off half of it and the back half of it, which is like 350 square feet. We just put five desks in there, put a conference table on there. We had an out exterior entrance for it. And we made that our home base. So at one point, I think I had like five guys working in there. And um, that was where we did everything. We rolled the coins, uh, laundry coins. We collected all the rents. 
had them all laid on the table like a bank, you know, it was pretty crazy. And uh, we made it work. So in two years later, our, our business doubled. Yeah, so letting, I, that's the letting go, the business doubled. Yeah, I can only imagine what happened when you were able to kind of free yourself up and free some of your time up, uh, have the right people. And I think it's really important that you mentioned that the people you were hiring were in line with your mission and your values. Uh, as well as having a strategic advisor in there, those those plays allowed you, the expert, to have a lot more time and put more more thought into how that pivot was going to work out for you. Uh, and I'm really glad to hear that your business doubled over that time. Uh, when you were when you were looking for an assistant, could you go into a, a little more depth on what exactly you were looking for? Because at that point, you were handling every aspect of the business, and I'm curious how you decided to to pass off some of those responsibilities. Yeah, it's also not easy to just sort of let go of that control that you've had before and kind of like give trust into somebody else to see, you know, just, you know, give away trust and try to figure out if they can even do it. Absolutely. It's like um, not willing to admit that you also make mistakes. Like this guy makes mistakes. So I wasn't willing to admit that at the point where I wasn't asking for help, right? The most successful people ask for help rapidly and they know when to add and who to ask for help the people who fail they try to carry the world you know on their shoulders they don't want to ask anybody for help and when they break down it's too late right so when i asked for help i needed a few things from this person i needed them to let me stay in one place so i could be there for my wife and future daughter which means I need them to be my runner, my little rabbit, right? I have to stay, I have to stay in the orchard. They have to be the, the rabbit. So they got to run the rent checks. At that time, I wasn't doing electronic yet. They got to run the rent checks. They got to do the showings, right? They got to meet vendors. They got to open doors. At that time, I wasn't fully digital on entry either. They got to do all the running that I need so I can stay in one place and be the quarterback. So I, if you like football, man, I just, I had to transition to be the sideline and then slowly get the pieces so they can run up and down the field. Yeah. I think that's a great analogy. Uh, you, you getting on the sideline and being the coach standing in one spot while, while people fill the right positions and execute the roles that they need to do. Uh, and I can only imagine all of the driving around all of the access, the showings, every minute that you're driving in the past, you were probably on the phone that entire time. Um, and now you're able to really break off and focus on those phone calls uh, and, and handle them yourself. So it's, it's great that you were able to, to get yourself out of that time position. Man, JD, you just gave me deja vu. <laughs> <laughs> like I remember driving in my truck and I got like, how many kind of fast food wrappers in my footwell? Like six different restaurants just crumpled up. This crumpled up my pool. I don't have time. I'm eating and talking on the run. So glad I don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, your body's probably thinking you for it too. Oh, I had this humongous gut. Like, you know how some construction guys, they're like strong as elephants, but they have huge guts. Well, that was like me. <laughs> uh, that's so interesting. Now, I guess I want to get into the, the book you just published published um and what's going on with passive wealth 
So you've, you've kind of run the gambit and you've been doing everything. Um, I'm really curious to hear why you wrote the book, um, what it's about, who it's for, and just give me the lowdown on what people are going to learn when they go through those pages. Sure. So you know how most people trade their time for money until they die and they never invest? We know way too many of those people. Exactly. They could be your family, your best friends growing up. You know, a lot of people, because it's, it's, it's the reality that that doesn't set you up for long-term. That doesn't set up the next generation, generation after that with wealth. So we wrote this book to spark the minds who want financial freedom and show them this is one way to do it. You know, 90% of all the millionaires created in the United States, they come from real estate, not crypto, right? Not making jewelry, not YouTubing, but real estate, boring old fashioned real estate. (laughs) And 80% of that, of that stat, those are first gen millionaires, not trust fund babies. So how are all these people doing it? I know there's already books out there. Okay, there's already companies that can help. But this takes another angle on it. It's property management, which is often like this, the problem stepchild of real estate. People think it's like, oh, it's not glamorous. It's a dirty job. But it's so essential. You like driving your car, right? But you, you, you don't like taking it to a mechanic? Well, you have a problem, you know? <laughs> like, you want to buy a piece of property? Okay. You want to make a profit when you sell? Okay. Would you like to know what to spend it on and how to make it worth more money? That's kind of what the book talks about. How many people have you seen, they buy a property and they spend the money in all the wrong places? And they go, damn it, JD and Mike, I didn't make a dollar on this property. And you go, yeah, because you're an idiot. (laughs) You try to do it all by yourself. You had all these grand ideas like you're going to live there one day. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about your gold curtains, man. Come on, they want amenities. They want air conditioning. They want appliances. They want spacious floor plans. They want balconies. They want parking. You know, common sense stuff. They don't care about your 50-year roof. They don't care. Totally. We see that a lot in the the short-term space. It's it's so often. So our our team does the acquisitions. We do the furnishing and design. And then we do the property management. It's so often that people want to do the furniture themselves. They want to do the design themselves because they think they can save money. Really, we're not trying to spend their money on on lavish items. We just know what's going to make them the most return. And as a management company earning a commission fee schedule, we just want that property to make as much money as possible. Um, And we know there'll be repeat investor clients if they're making as much money as possible. So as long as those visions and values are aligned, it, it tends to work out. And I think you're totally right. The property management piece is so critical. Uh, in having someone who knows what's going to make the most return and knows the market better. We see a lot of these hosts and people who want to do one property themselves, they get so stuck in treating that property like their baby, a lot like the investors you said you had to handhold. And it's, 
it's hard to take them back and have them realize the reason you got into short-term rentals was the passive income and you wanted to get three, four, five, ten houses um, so you could quit your job. But now you're you're spending just as much time as you do in your W-2 job managing one property because you're making sure every single aspect is perfect. Uh, and it's such a bad trade of time. Uh, it's so much easier to give it off to a property manager who understands that the, the goal is returns and they have no other stake in that game than to make you the returns. And I, I love that your book takes that angle. Yeah, there's a quick litmus test. Okay, if you're an owner watching and you're self-managing, when you go to the paint store, if you spend more than two minutes choosing the paint colors, it's time to hire a manager. <laughs> I love that. So what, what would you say are other signs uh, that someone should, should start to transition into property management? Do you, do you think people should try to property manage on their own to begin with to get a sense of it? Or do you think they should revert to a property manager right away? I would say it depends case by case. I've had some clients where I said, uh, they kind of wanted me to mentor them. And so I said, you know, why don't you just self-manage first? And if you need help, we're your safety net. We'll take it over at any time. But since you really, really want to know the granular activities of, of you know, a management company, why don't you just self-manage for a while? I'll give you all the tools, all the software you should use. And um, that way you can manage the managers effectively without being ignorant, um, you know, without calling apples oranges. You'll, you'll already have some experience. So that works for some clients, right? That approach. Otherwise, if, you're, if you see a client that's overwhelmed or they know every single tenant's birthday, that's a problem. You know, I have no problem with being friends. Okay, be friends, be cordial, be the nicest landlord they ever met, but keep, keep an arm's length because what if you have to evict them? What if they lose their job? How are you going to kick them out? You probably have to move them into your house, into the basement. You know, I'm not saying you shouldn't. I love charities. I do charity work. It's just that you want to be able to have that freedom to be the landlord, put on that landlord hat and have that distance. And if you're doing it yourself as the owner, that's the worst. Because you'll have the tenants who say, if I'm the manager talking to the tenant, say, oh, the owner needs you to take that gazebo you built in the carport, take it down. And they'll go, nah, me and Dave have a thing. It's all good. Uh-huh. Right? <laughs> you know, tenants say that. If they know the owner, if they have a history, they try to circumvent the management company. And that's not what you want. You want the rules enforced because even if Dave is cool with that gazebo, he won't be when it burns down and it kills another occupant. He won't be cool with that. And the insurance won't be, and he, he might go broke, you know, for being cool with something with one of his friends who lives at the apartment he owns. I hope that makes sense because things can get serious really quick. And, and people should treat, the owners should treat the apartment buildings or the single family homes they own as businesses that's going to help them when they retire. They should treat it as seriously as they do their 401k plan. 
because in some cases it'll do better than your 401k plan. You don't have to wait till you're 59 to cash it out. <laughs> yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of real estate is like you can you can cash in on it uh, every month as the checks come in as opposed to waiting to access the funds later. And management does act as the perfect buffer uh, and really keeps you in a position to stay professional. I think that's that's what a lot of people lose um, sight of when they want to self-manage is the, the direct contact doesn't really give them the same bailout as management has when something needs to be enforced. Management is much easier position to treat it as a business and enforce the rules that were all agreed upon when the lease was signed. That's so right. what, what is the next step for you? I mean, you've, you've kind of done it all at this point. What are you looking to get to next? Uh, I know you said you started to do some remodeling and maybe some, some development for, for yourself and your own portfolio. I'm curious where you want to take this thing. Well, we started a coaching business. So now, you know, before we can just help the people in front of us in the Bay Area face-to-face. -face. So that's why we started a coaching business. I have six coaches myself. So I know the benefits of coaching and having a blind spot detector. Um, two millimeters of shift today can prevent a plane. Instead of going to Iceland, we're going to go to Miami like we planned, baby. You know, <laughs> we're not going to freeze our asses off in Iceland. We're going to go where we thought we were going to go when we started off on the journey. So that's why we created a coaching company. And our clients are real estate investors or real estate professionals. And we give them the guidance so they can scale their business, scale their portfolio, work hard and work smart in the beginning so that later on down the road, all their wealth is passively generated. Love it. Yeah, where can people find that at? Uh, yeah, our website is www.passivewealthcoaching.com. And that's probably the best place to, uh, to find us. Same on Instagram and uh, Facebook business page as well. Great. And then while we're at it, where can people find your new book? Uh, they can find this on Amazon. It just hit bestseller in uh, three categories, commercial real estate and real estate and property insurance. I'm not sure why it hit, hit it insurance. I think it's because we talk about renters insurance. Um, but yeah, anyways, we just hit bestseller. We're really excited and, and, and proud to share the, the value real estate has. With, That's with, great. Uh, readers. Yeah, I think, I think it's the obscure angle that you come from that really makes that book a success. There, there are hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of books out on real estate. Like you said, it's one of the oldest wealth builders uh, that we know. But you approaching it from a new angle must be the reason that it's one of the top sellers today. It's, it's kind of a, a light bulb that went off. Like, do you know how many wealthy plumbing companies and electrical companies there are in my neighborhood? Because nobody wants to do that work. It's like, you know, when you, when you had elections back in high school and it was like, oh man, Johnny's going to run for treasurer unopposed. Oh, there he is. He's treasurer, you know? People hate dirty jobs or busy work jobs, but they don't know the wealth it can create. I mean, I don't, my clients can be watching this. Look, are you okay? I'm only working two hours a week. Is everyone okay with that? Of course they are because the job gets done. 
I mean, I went from working, like we talked about earlier, 12 hours a week, 12 hours a day, sorry, 12 hours a day to two hours a day. And the wealth has just, you know, I own $10 million worth of property. It may seem like a lot to some people or a little, but I'm not stopping. This is just the beginning. In five years from now, it's probably going to be 100 because I have, I have all four of my properties for sale right now. So I'm also growing. I'm doing everything. You know, we don't teach theory. We teach application and implementation. I'm not some college professor saying, oh, if A plus B equals X, Y, that means you got to get a job. You know, I'm going to tell you, look, I screwed up here. I hope you don't screw up there. But if you do, there's plan B, you know, get off your ass and we'll, we'll figure it out. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it makes much more sense to learn from you who's been applying it uh, and can kind of walk them out of, of bad situations uh, as opposed to just theories in, in other books. I, I love that approach as well. And I love that you're still looking to grow. You have a, you have to thank your daughter for a lot of that. It sounds like she really shaved a lot of time out of, out of your schedule. It's that necessity factor. Like um, one of the most famous life coaches explains it this way. If you had a gun to your head right now and they said, listen, you need to make a million dollars the next 12 months or your family's dead. Could you? I know I could. I don't know about Mike. I could definitely try. That's for sure. Because <laughs> your life depends on it. Your family's life depends on it. But forget that there's even a gun there. It already <laughs> depends on your production. You know what I mean? It's already, the pressure is already there. It just hasn't been focused. And amazing things happen when energy gets focused. Yeah, that's a great perspective. People have to have to realize the pressure is there. And that's the only that's the shift that needs to happen for them to get to the next level. So tell us about the portfolio you're trying to build. Like, as far as next investments for you, if, if you, I were to give you a million dollars today, what are you doing with it? Because I, I made it over the last 12 months. Awesome. Congrats. Yeah. Way to go, JD. Uh, with a million dollars, I'd buy something local, a multifamily product, something that I could add value and double my down payment within a couple of years. So if I was putting a million down, I would see what can I do in two years to make that $2 million, uh, 1031 exchange funds. That would always be the goal, whatever the, whatever the metrics are, that's always the goal. So when you, you get into a property, would you say that your, your main investment style at this point is a, a, more of like a Burr method? Do you try to find value adds? Uh, it's a value. It can be a value add as far as value adding higher rent or adding cosmetics or adding amenities. So it doesn't have to be like a, to a really dog meat piece of property. It can just be a property where the owner was lazy. And they didn't raise the rent in 20 years or, um, you know, just buying it at a discount. Whatever the case is, the Burr model is great. It's a, it's a proven model. And um, cash for keys is a great strategy 
to accelerate that model. I know it's worked for us about 50% of the time we offer it's, it's worked. I one just worked last week, <laughs> but they were never going to move out, man. Dang. What do you typically offer? Um, it depends if they're in arrears or not. If they're current, uh, the one that's worked was like six months of rent, six months of market rent, not the rent they're paying, but six months of market rent so they can comfortably relocate somewhere and pay a secure deposit. If they're in arrears, it's a forgiveness of the debt plus one or two months uh, rent and no damages will be billed. Wow. I mean, that sounds like a really great deal. It's uh, you're going to pay with time or money, right? And some tenancies, they just drag on and on and on. And that's where the importance of having a management company in there in an impartial party where they don't like to drag on issues longer than they should. I can't tell you how many times I stepped in, took over a contract from the owner, and there was a situation with one of the tenants where it had gone on for years and they were taking advantage of the landlord. And they just, I said, well, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Are there any nightmare tenant situations you can tell us about? Absolutely. Definitely no names. Okay. No names. We're going to change the names of the innocent and the guilty. So, um, I rented a property uh, to a corporate tenant. Now that corporate tenant was doing vacation rentals. So it's like a string, it's like a string Airbnb. I'm not renting directly to the, the booker of that weekend, right? Makes sense, okay. So um, hard times fell, COVID happened. Airplane shut down, we're all masked up. You all remember that. And so that corporate rental went bankrupt they had a huge amount of funding like i forgot like 12 million dollars worth of startup funding here in the bay area and they left about a thousand homeowners high and dry so what happened was with that property the the string tenant one of them i have uh there was there was five there was five because there was five rooms so two of them left immediately. They were scared. They didn't know what was going to happen. Three stayed. Three stayed on for about three months. And then um, I met with them. I said, hey, look, this isn't fair to the owner. No one's getting paid. Y'all are honest people. I try to do the ethical moral pitch. Okay. I said, y'all are nice people. Uh, we didn't see your applications when you moved in, but it looks like y'all got nice jobs. And I'm sure you, want to, you wouldn't want this to happen to you, right? Okay, that worked on two out of three. Okay, the last one, the last person standing, I should say the last person squatting is uh, was the one that gave us the most headaches. Um, we, gave, we heard every excuse in the book and COVID was a big one of them. Like, you can't knock on the door. I'm scared you're going to get me sick. Or I can't pay the rent. I sent you the declaration. Um, I'm occupying the whole entire house. Now, not just one bedroom. 
I've spread my things around the whole entire house because I'm scared burglars are going to get in. So I need the place to look full. Oh my gosh. That's a new one. That's a new one. Okay. I, I installed burglar, you know, I installed security cameras in all the rooms because I need to feel safe. I need you to hire a security service for me now. What about the rent? You haven't paid the rent. Did you forget about step one? You know? So finally, uh, consulting with the lawyer, I, I, consulting from a lawyer from the beginning, because this is such a tricky, such a new sit- situation with COVID. Like, what are we allowed to do? Yeah, yeah it's impossible. Yeah. COVID is a very difficult time to be a property manager. Oh, it was tough. It was tough. And and that tenant was trying to classify the property as a hotel so that we needed to provide like hand sanitizers in the lobby, like daily disinfections. And I'm like, who is coaching this person? Like, you're just trying to kill my owner, you know? So six months went by. No payments to the owner, right? Because the corporate tenant went broke. No payments from the string tenant. So you're talking about like over $20,000 in accrued rent, back rent, right? The liquidation settlement instructions was a stonewall. It was a joke. It was an email and phone that never got answered. So that was a dead end. The rent relief program didn't help because it doesn't help with tenants who don't cooperate. Like if they had a person who was helping, they would have they would have paid the owner, but it, it was a dead end, so that was gone. So that the the person that was staying there, the squatter, we had nothing. We had no other choices left. Okay, my my lawyer advised me to just get a copy of their lease, which we did, and so we went in there and we filled up the other four rooms. We rented out the other four rooms. We had no choice at that point. So we filled up the other four rooms. And guess what? Squatter left six weeks ago. I mean, six weeks after they moved in, the squatter left. Did a midnight run, taped the key on the door. And uh, we didn't pursue that person. We could have gone easily got a collection after them. But you know what? We made, a, we made a decision we, with the owner. We said, look, tough times, we get it. This is choice A. They vandalize the place, they damage it. We're gonna go after them full force of the law. B, they leave peacefully. They don't damage the place, no writing on the wall, no, nothing like that. We let them go. And so that's what happened. And that was a nightmare. That's like six months of torture. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that that's six months of pressure on you guys to to make something happen. And it sounds like the developments weren't always going the best. I uh I had a competitor in the short term space who did something similar one time. Uh his whenever the the stay would end through Airbnb uh and someone would try to squat and extend longer, he basically had this guy contracted, this big scary looking guy who would bring in a couple of big scary dogs. And he would just say, all right, that's fine. You can stay past your reservation, but you don't have a reservation. And this guy does have a reservation now. So he's going to be staying in the house with you too. 
I love um, that. And that, that would usually get people out within a day. I love that. I, I had a confession from two of the tenants that voluntarily left. They told me that, oh my gosh, the owner's a family. Like we thought there was some rich, evil corporation we could just take advantage of. And I was like, but who works in the corporations? Like people, families. Why is it okay to take advantage of anybody? I was like, what? It's just ridiculous. I, I'm, it's not a, I'm not a landlords versus tenants guy. Not at all. I'm like, let's live in a sphere of harmony. And that happens through communication, education, positive reinforcement, and everyone doing their job. So I just want to be clear on that. Sure, sure. It's, it's very easy for big businesses to get labeled as evil uh, and get taken advantage of all too often. But you're right. I mean, families are the backbone of that. People do work for those corporations and, and there are other people who depend on it. So it's, it's kind of crazy the perspective people take and, and the limits they're willing to push. Definitely. It's, um, it's something I try to educate as many people as possible on it. And um, just to give you an example, the tenants who think they're doing you and I and every landlord a favor by, oh, there's a water leak. Oh, don't bother the landlord. You don't want to call them. It's like the weekend. We'll call them next week when I have more time. Meanwhile, drip, 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 drip. <laughs> Meanwhile, the bubble on the ceiling was like this big. And I was like, this big? Like Shamu getting ready to burst. And like a $200 fix turned into $20,000 insurance claim with mold and hotel stays. I mean, that's the kind of mentality a lot of people think is the right way. Don't bother the landlord. They're going to increase our rents if we call them. It's education. So I have to send out these email blasts, you know, periodically that please tell us what's broken. We want to know. We want to fix what's broken. Let us know. We'll send somebody ASAP. Don't worry. You're not going to get in trouble. <laughs> Every once in a while, a tenant says, you sure it's okay? You don't mind? You don't mind? I said, oh my goodness, you live with some slumlords. That's so sad. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. That's a great way to stay on top of the maintenance. Uh, that's awesome. Mike, do you want to shift into our uh, end segment here? With the, yeah, for with sure. the tough questions? Thanks. So this part of the show we call the Live Free Three. It's three questions we ask every guest comes on our show. Um, they're sort of just, they're not necessarily um, real estate questions or more so like investment and just kind of like you questions. So the first question we have here is what is your favorite investing book or podcast and why? And you're not allowed to say your own. Oh, definitely not. Yeah. I mean, for me, just the, the Godfather, man, Kiyosaki. You got to get up to Kiyosaki. It's probably the, the, the book that was passed around in my, my first brokerage job, passed around the most. And I definitely didn't understand everything about it when I read it the first time. But as I become an investor, became an investor, and now a coach, man, it's just like, just like the Bible, man. If you haven't read that, you got to start there. <laughs> read the Bible too. But still, you know, the richest man in Babylon is definitely a good, good place as well. Um, and yeah, the Kiyosaki podcast, Tony Robbins podcast. Um, I'm huge on self-improvement. 
and uh, getting your body straight and your mind straight. So you have the energy to do all the things you dreamed about. Yeah, it definitely helps and keeps you, keeps you going, keeps you strong. Um, what is your biggest goal this year and why is it important to you? My biggest goal this year is to get a good group of coaching clients so that we can start changing their lives because honestly, I was just living a more selfish life, if that makes sense. Like, hey, you know, social media is like, hey, look at my cars, look at all my exotic cars, look at my houses, look at my jewelry, you know, like, oh, look at my dog, my dog's $10,000. Like, I thought it was cool, but it's so pointless. It's so pointless that just in nine months, I shifted my whole mentality to be selfish to now I'm living a life of service. So it's not like I have this, ha ha ha. It's like, no, dude, you know, I want you to have this. Let's get you everything you dreamed of. Like, I'm good. Like, let's get it for you. It's your turn. Let's go get your dreams. Let's go get your dreams accomplished. Let's get you that financial freedom. It's not that hard. So that's how, that's my goal for this year. I would say for the next 12 months, there's only three months left here. That, that's definitely my, my 12 month mission and vision with our company. Wow, excellent. And what kind of people are you looking to connect with? What kind of people should reach out to you? Definitely uh, anybody who wants to learn, they're welcome. We, we'll do free workshops and webinars. Anybody who wants to learn. Uh, if anybody that actually wants to work with us, we're looking for investors in real estate or real estate professionals who want to learn more about property management. Awesome. And the best place to reach you for that is PassiveWealthCoaching.com. That's right. PassiveWealthCoaching.com. And the YouTube channel, we have a free webinar on our YouTube channel, Passive Wealth Coaching. Everything's the same name on all social medias. Awesome. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure you'll be getting uh, some people reaching out after this episode. You've, you've passed so much knowledge on to us throughout this last hour. Uh, and we really appreciate having you on, Rob. It's, it's incredible to hear the journey you've been on and how you've kind of navigated being in every space within real estate. Uh, I was thinking for a second, lending might be your, your future goal so you could wrap up uh, the entire package. But I'm glad to hear that that shifting to helping other people is, is your new focus. Um, that's amazing. The last thing I, I want to ask you before we leave you here today is what is one piece of advice you would give to, to new investors who are just getting started? Okay. So we all know the compound compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. So we should start using that wondrous thing, compound interest as soon and as much as possible when you're young compound interest. So you also look up that article about that UPS driver who only made like 14 grand a year and he ended up having a fortune of $70 million by the time he died because he invested so early. It's not how much you earn. You could make $10 million a year in salary, but if you spend 12, you're broke. You're in debt, right? Okay, it's, it's how much you invest. It's not how much you save. Right, like the parable of the five talents explains this. The servant who buried his, his bar of gold lost his job, homie. Uh -huh. The one who who got who took two bars, who took a bar of gold and made it into two, 
He got everyone else's job. <laughs> so you got to invest. When you invest, you have a plan for the future. You're doing something for a bigger cause, not just yourself, not just to go out and buy, buy a round of drinks, you know, for your friends. You're doing something for the future, for kids that may not even exist yet, you know? So invest early and often. I love it. Every dollar you took away is, is worth that much more in the future. And, and you're able to reach so many more people and, and do so many more things. Um, the round of drinks today doesn't go very far. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe just not feeling that great tomorrow. I'd rather have uh, some money in the account. I love it, Rob. Well, thank you so much for, for being a guest on our podcast. Uh, it's going to come out tomorrow. Um, we'll get you the link over and uh, you dropped a lot of good nuggets today. So thank you so much. It's been an honor, truly. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. It's been an honor. Yeah, appreciate the invite. Yeah, but anyways, guys, that sort of brings us to the end of the episode here. Um, if you learned something, which I know you did from Rob, he was, he's a very smart guy, um, leave us a little review. Um, feel free to go check out Rob's stuff. Um, and that's pretty much it. Uh, just live free, guys. Uh, anything else from you, JD? No, that's it. Live free, everyone. Uh, live free and passive wealth. <laughs> that's right. Catch you next week, guys. Peace.